welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, you hear a conversation about the ongoing nuclear negotiations in Vienna and the future of the JCPOA. I was joined in conversation by Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute, Doug Bando from the Cato Institute, and the panel was moderated by Bruce Fain, and it was hosted online by the National Interest Foundation, which is based here in Washington, D.C. Here is our panel discussion about the future of the Iran nuclear deal, moderated by Bruce Fain. The, the joint comprehensive uh, plan of action that was an executive agreement negotiated by President Obama with the government of Iran uh, years ago, an executive agreement uh, does not have the status of a treaty and can be unilaterally abrogated by any other president for any reason whatsoever. Um, and as background, the United States currently possesses about 3,750 nuclear warheads, vastly greater in their destructive potential than the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. Um, it's also important to note that the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty reserves for five special nations authority to uh, possess nuclear weapons that no other country in the world enjoys. Uh, it was a privilege that was forced by uh, power politics in 1969, and those five countries are the United States, Russia, China, Britain, and France, but they were not selected because it was thought they were more morally responsible than any other nations. And then lastly, we need to recognize that within uh, the area of Iran, uh, there are nuclear warheads possessed by Israel, Pakistan, India. Uh, it's not as though there's a nuclear free zone there. Um, and further, uh, it's clear, I think, uh, from the Iranian perspective that after uh, General or Colonel Gaddafi abandoned weapons of mass destruction in Libya. It wasn't long before the United States destroyed his country and he was slaughtered, uh, which sends a message uh, rather clearly that uh, when the United States feels that uh, you're vulnerable as a foreign country and they want regime change, if you don't have nuclear weapons, you can expect some kind of effort to overthrow you. Uh, that's a lesson I think North Korea has also learned. Those are just background observations. Uh, about the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. But uh, let's us begin with uh, Nagar from the Iranian perspective. How do you see the negotiations and uh, the prospects of success? Sure, thanks Bruce. And thank you to the National Interest Foundation for um, inviting me for hosting this important event and hello to my fellow panelists, an excellent panel um, put together here. Um, just to, it's great that you gave that sort of a big, very uh, grand view of things. I want to, I usually try to give a grand view, but not let me step a little uh, closer to the issue um, of the JCPOA. Obviously, as audience knows, the JCPOA was uh, an agreement that uh, was reached in 2015 after a few years of very, very intense negotiations between Iran and world powers as known the P5 plus one, which the United States was one party of that multilateral uh, negotiation. And then uh, the deal had about one year uh, to sort of uh, materialize after its implementation. And then uh, President Trump came into office 
Um, he threatened, he had threatened to uh, pull out of the deal and eventually he did that in 2018. So talking about where we are now, I just want to keep that in mind that the United States is outside of the JCPOA right now. It has been for over three years now, uh, since May of uh, 2018, I believe. And two um, over two years of that time, was under the Trump administration who decided to pull out of the deal. And about a year of that um, has fallen now under President Biden. With the election of uh, Joe Biden in November, there was renewed hope, I think, um, in Tehran, obviously, we're watching US elections very closely. And among some Iran watchers like myself, that the United States would rejoin the JCPOA. It was an election promise of President Biden, part of his team, or actually the ones who negotiated the deal under President Obama, the Obama-Biden administration back then. And um, President Biden himself, back then candidate Biden, and uh, members, senior members of his administration warned President Trump and criticized him uh, for pulling out of the JCPOA. So there was an expectation that a return to the JCPOA by the United States would happen as a priority, as a foreign policy priority of the Biden administration early on um, in, in, the, in the beginning of this government. And it's so far been uh, since January, about uh, nearly a year now, uh, that the U.S. hasn't returned to the JCPOA. There have been some constructive discussions on basically agreeing on a sequence to return to the JCPOA because Iran also, in this time, Iran hasn't technically left the deal. They have still stayed the deal, um, but they have reduced their compliance. They have expanded their nuclear program. And my understanding is that Tehran's calculation is that this is their own way of uh, gaining leverage in, in the negotiations and sort of putting pressure by this escalation, putting pressure on the other side, meaning the United States, to return back to the JCPOA. So there have been, uh, there were six rounds of talks um, under the previous administration of Iran, the uh, Rouhani administration, the moderates, with the Biden administration. It seemed like reporting and sources um, had confirmed that they were almost getting to that point of agreeing on a sequence, but it was just too close to the Iranian uh, presidential election also, which happened in June. There was a change of administration. The moderates are out. The hardliners have consolidated power now in Iran. And so this latest round of nuclear negotiations uh, was the seventh round. It was the first with the hardline team in Iran. It's a new team. They have very hawkish views toward very hardline views towards the United States. Some of them are very vocal against the JCPOA, the way the previous administration negotiated the deal. And in their, the silver lining, I would say, with this new team is that I see them as hardliners 2.0. So they're not exactly uh, the same cut as the previous hardline administration, which would be President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in Iran. And back then there wasn't a JCPOA existing. This time, this hardline team seems to not wanting to start from scratch and sort of redoing everything that the previous administration did. But at the same time, they see themselves as wanting to take more, more concessions from the United States and sort of achieve what the previous administration couldn't as 
as this team sees them, the previous one, uh, being too soft towards the West, the United States and Europe. So uh, reporting and also, uh, you know, from sources, what we're hearing from the seventh round is that even though the hardliners, this new team has agreed to build on the draft or what was, you know, sort of uh, talked about in the first six rounds of negotiations, um, they are trying to make more demands. They're basically expanded uh, what exists from six rounds of negotiations. And um, from if you appear to the US and European side, that seems problematic. The UK, uh, Germany, um, and I believe even France have um, announced publicly in the United States that Iran's new team's position is problematic. But just looking at the big picture, and uh, I'll try to wrap there, and I'm happy to answer questions. But it, at, I think at this point, both sides seem to be engaged in a sort of blame game of putting so much focus rather than on diplomacy itself, putting more focus on trying to blame the other for an eventual failure of diplomacy. And I find that problematic because regardless of who wins the blame game, and there's a, a, I give a high chance to the United States for doing that, um, the failure of diplomacy is going to be a failure for both sides, for all sides. The failure of this uh, talk of, of an agreement um, on Iran's nuclear program, putting limits, basically convincing the Iranians to put limits on their nuclear program is going to lead to what we've seen in the past um, year or so, an expansion of the program, a more um, dangerous escalation of Iran's nuclear capabilities. I still don't think Tehran's calculation is to go after a bomb, but they want to push the limit to sort of gain leverage. And then this opens up potentials for military escalation in the region and more instability, military escalation between Iran, the United States, Israel, other US allies, Iran's proxies, any of these, it's a volatile region. You can stumble into conflict. It's not like everything can be planned. The US is not looking for a war with Iran and a classic all-out war. Iran is not looking for a war with the United States, but both sides and their allies and proxies can stumble into conflict and conflict can escalate and get out of hand. So in the absence of successful diplomacy, and I'm not saying it has failed yet, but dragging this diplomatic process for too long will bring it closer to failure. So in the absence of, of successful diplomacy, um, we can expect more escalation across the region, which will be very dangerous for, you know, all parties involved and eventually civilians pay the price for any kind of military conflict in the region. But I'll stop there and um, looking forward to hearing from everyone else and answering questions from the audience. Okay, but before we go to treat it, I just like to ask one question. What uh, leverage, if any, or how much do you think the United States position is handcuffed by what Israel wants, um, because Israel obviously has an enormous influence on U.S. domestic policy. We know at least um, verbally the Israelis have been far more aggressive than the United States against Iran, uh, threatening to do everything, uh, including the use of force to prevent the acquisition of nuclear weapons, which they possess in abundance. 
Um, can the United States, you think, domestically afford to walk away from the Israeli position, which seems to forestall any possible agreement? Well, that's a great point. I think the Israel factor is a very important, it's a key factor in this whole um, Iran nuclear issue, because at the end of the day, Iran is not a direct threat to U.S. soil, but it is a threat. It can be a threat with, it cap with its capabilities to U.S. allies in the region, mainly Israel. So it's always been a key factor um, in all of these negotiations and the pursuit of, kind of diplomacy or military escalations. At the same time, I think well, under the Obama team, we saw that the Israelis were not in the driver's seat when it came to negotiations with Iran and to the, um, you know, pushback, much public and behind the scenes pushback of Bibi Netanyahu back then. The Obama team eventually did reach an agreement with Iran, which the Israeli prime minister wasn't happy about. I think this team is a little bit different and Trita is more of an expert on the Iran-Israel dynamic, but I'll just make this note that I think the Biden team is trying to have direct and regular consultation with the Israelis to avoid sort of the public um, embarrassments that happened under the Obama with Bibi Netanyahu. I also think the new government in Israel is a little bit different, sort of more cautious as far as getting ahead of the United States. Um, and sort of, I don't see that kind of confidence of, or sort of arrogance that Bibi Netanyahu had when, you know, claiming that he has more votes in U.S. Congress than the U.S. president kind of situation. I still don't see this new government in that position. So I'll be cautious as, as far as predicting anything on the Israeli side, but definitely it's a big factor in all of this, the U.S. calculation, U.S. thinking, U.S. strategy. And there's no way for any administration, Republican or Democrat, to just keep them completely out of the equation. Yeah, I make this one observation, then go to Trita. But you need to remember that the reason why Obama did not seek to have the agreement ratified as a treaty is because he knew he couldn't get two thirds vote in the Senate. So even though he maybe had the strength to withstand the Israeli lobby, he didn't think he had Congress on his side. But Trita, exactly. now why don't you make your observations, Trita? We're wonderfully uh, waiting for your insights. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you for this kind invitation. Great to be with. Uh, with friends on this panel. Um, if I could address that one specific question first, perhaps. Um, I think the Biden administration, as Nagar pointed out, had this belief that if they just consulted more closely with uh, the Israelis, they would be able to temper the Israeli opposition, make sure that the Israelis did not create problems in Congress, et cetera, for them. Obviously, you know, as long as Netanyahu was there, it, it was quite a mystery as to why that strategy would have any chance. And then when the Bennett government came in, uh, it seemed to have generated a couple of quick victories. Uh, Bennett agreed not to play the role that Netanyahu had played in 2015, not create, you know, aggressively go against it, not speak very publicly against the American position. But as we have gotten closer to uh, a phase in the negotiations in which some very crucial decisions need to be made, um, we have seen that, A, Bennett has started increasingly behave like uh, Netanyahu, not quite, but nevertheless, more so than before, speaking publicly, arguing in favor of zero enrichment, you know, a position the United States has abandoned a long time ago, uh, uh, you know, opposing the very idea of going back to Vienna. Uh, Gantz is coming to this town now to make an argument that the United States needs to show that it can take out the Iranian nuclear program militarily, you know, really beef up the military option. And B, we see that the actual 
red lines of the Israelis had not changed at all. Perhaps they were less quiet than under uh, uh, Netanyahu. But when it comes to actually substantive change, I, I cannot detect a single one. So that, to me, raises the question mark of, of how valuable was all of that investment early on, particularly mindful of the fact that the first couple of weeks of the Biden administration was quite critical. Um, and um, um, that much of that time was to actually use to consult with Israelis and the Saudis and others rather than go back uh, to Vienna. On the overall picture, uh, it is indeed a very bleak picture. Uh, I think one of the problems that exists on the Iranian side is that this new team that is coming in do not have at all the same experience in negotiating with the United States as the previous team. Uh, this new team had some encounters with the United States in the negotiations in 2009, which did not lead anywhere. Uh, and that raises a very dangerous aspect in my mind, which is these are very sensitive and complex negotiations. I'm not saying they're bad negotiators, I don't know. But I do wonder whether they have the capacity uh, and the skills to be able to calibrate their calculated escalations if it is deemed, uh, if it is designed to be a negotiating tactic. Do they know how far to go and how far not to go in those escalations without risking the full collapse of the negotiations? What seemed to have happened in um, Vienna last week, first of all, I think it was largely expected. No one thought that this is going to be a breakthrough, but they may have gone a bit further than uh, the US or the Europeans expected. And as a result, further dampen uh, uh, the, the mood there. But then there's also problems elsewhere. Uh, uh, first, obviously, the Iranians are walking back in the, in the language of uh, the American side, some of the agreements, although everyone has always said nothing is agreed upon until everything is agreed upon. Nevertheless, it does create problems. I think there is a major problem on the American side that I'm still not clear as to why it's so difficult to get some movement on. Uh, and it's not just about, uh, you know, um, legally binding guarantees, etc. I think that we have to put that to the side. What the issue, I think, at this point is, is that it's very clear. If the JCPOA is revised right now, sanctions are lifted, even the ones the Iranians are asking for that Biden is not agreeing to, then at the end of the day, very few, if any, European companies will go back into the Iranian market. Because what they're looking for is not what happens in Vienna. They're looking for what happens in Washington in 2024, who the next president of the United States is going to be. They're not going to go back into Iran and then have to leave again. Because, And this is a profound problem that it, it goes beyond just the negotiations. And the credibility of American promises in negotiations have been dramatically undermined by the political divisions and frankly political instability that exists in the United States. We have now normalized the idea that one administration may not at all respect the decision of a previous administration, as if that has been the standard of American politics. It has not. Remember when Mattis uh, testified in Congress uh, at his uh, uh, hearings to confirm it and was asked about what his position was on the JCPOA. He said that America respects its signature. That was the normal standard line. Now suddenly we're in a position in which it is like completely normal that if the United States signs an agreement, whether it's an executive or not, the next uh, administration may not at all care about it and, and upend it as if it's nothing. I think that's a really dangerous situation because not only does it undermine um, uh, American trustworthiness in general, it really undermines a key leverage the United States has in these negotiations, which is what is the value and the potency of the promises that it's making? 
And that is a key problem right now. What will happen uh, in 2025 to this deal? The Iranians, are they going to be expected to give up their nuclear leverage for the promise of potentially getting uh, the economic benefit in 2025 if the right president wins? That, that's not a likely scenario. So there's, we have to address some of these issues because I, I fear that even if the Russians and the Chinese manage to put some pressure on the Iranians, and it seems like at least the Russians are, are open to doing so, I'm not so sure that that is sufficient to actually be able to break the deadlock that currently exists. Yeah. I've just uh, make the observation, uh, Trita and the others, uh, one thing that Iran might do is to insist that any agreement to be binding must be ratified by the Senate as a treaty. So it achieves that higher constitutional dignity, which makes it less vulnerable to swings in the White House. Uh, well, it seems kind of Bruce, odd. That, yes, go ahead, Trita. Uh, I mean, you make a great point. And um, I think anyone who is a supporter of the uh, uh, JCPOA, as I was, would have loved it for it to be um, um, a treaty. I think, however, we have to recognize that Trump did tear up a treaty that existed between Iran and the United States, the 1955 Amity Treaty. It just ripped it up. It was a treaty. It was uh, um, uh, confirmed by the Senate uh, and it didn't matter. He did it anyway and there was no opposition to it. I don't think anyone has the confidence. Again, it goes back to the political stability of the United States, that even if it is a treaty, that suddenly makes it much, much costlier and more difficult for the next president to, to undo it. I don't have any confidence, for instance, that even if it was a treaty, that President Ted Cruz in 2025 wouldn't tear it up anyways. Well, that might be the case, although if you have it ratified as a treaty, you've developed a political statement that makes it more politically costly for a president to walk away from it. And plus, sure, I said, I as a constitutional scholar, you could put in the treaty itself uh, that it can only be revoked uh, by a two-thirds vote of the Senate and write that into the treaty. And that then would prohibit a president from unilaterally abandoning the treaty. The law there is a little bit messy, but there's nothing that prevents that provision in a treaty. President couldn't walk away without the Senate's consent. Anyway, they're just possible. Actually, just one, one last point on that, Bruce. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. But again, it goes back to the fundamental problem. Political polarization and instability in the United States is precisely why there are almost no treaties going forward on almost anything like that, including well, on this. Yes, but in the Iran, that problem wasn't created by Iran. Right? Certainly not. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's, 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 a, it's a wider on... problem. Yeah, yes. it's a wider problem. All right, Doug, you're always wonderfully insightful. Give us your views on the JCPOA and where it's going and what its impacts could be. Well, it's a pleasure to be joining everyone on this uh, issue. It's certainly a very important moment uh, for U.S.-Iranian relations and the issue of the nuclear uh, you know, deal. That uh, you know, are we going to move uh, you know, back uh, to a very ugly past with instability, threats of war, and a lot of other other things? Yeah, you know, the irony with this, it's been noted earlier, is that Iran, of course, does not pose a direct threat to the United States. The, the notion that Iran would attack the U.S., of course, is fanciful. You know, given America's extraordinary, you know, uh, military capabilities and what would happen to Iran if it thought, you know, to do so. That what we are dealing with essentially is an indirect threat primarily being pushed by countries in the region, both uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, you know, being very important factors in terms of America's policy. I mean, when the JCPOA was negotiated, in many ways, it was a second best even then, but it was still the best second best uh, we could come up with. I mean, the hope was to slow any movement towards nuclear weapons, whether it be actually possession or becoming a nuclear threshold state. 
there was certainly a hope that it would create, it would open up opportunities to address and deal with other regional issues. That you know, and it's important to realize that these are two-way. I mean, folks in the U.S. act as if everything is Iran's fault, you know, without noting America's role in the region and, frankly, a very malign role in many ways. If you look at uh, the invasion of Iraq and involvement in uh, Libya, Syria, etc. Nevertheless, a hope that dealing with the nuclear issue could lead to discussions and accommodations on other issues. And also what struck me in many ways as the most important hope was to integrate the people of Iran into the international community, back into an economy and a social order that would show them the opportunities and would help transform Iran on the inside, to understand the options and opportunities that were out there. And unfortunately, all of these were challenged almost immediately. And part of that, of course, was the U.S. sanctions regime that uh, made uh, companies even reluctant then to get involved in, in Iran. Uh, you know, the attack by Republicans very calculated to suggest that this agreement would not survive. You know, the failure to uh, you know, promote and try to encourage integration of Iran into the uh, international community. And then essentially an assassination or attempted assassination by the Trump administration, that uh, despite support uh, within the administration from Mattis and others, you know, Trump deciding to kill off the treaty and have Pompeo give his famous speech of basically why uh, the, uh, the Iran should surrender its independent foreign policy to America and then everything would be wonderful, as if there was the slightest chance that uh, that would ever happen. You know, the hope, of course, uh, you know, was that the Europeans could kind of push it along and that uh, with Biden supporting it, that we could get into a new administration. And here was the opportunity to restore the JCPOA. Uh, the irony is if it folds, if, if it falls, it's going to be on uh, Joe Biden's watch. And in many ways, I think it will be his fault. It, uh, you know, part of it, I think, was they seem to assume that they did have this additional leverage. The Trump folks constantly talked about Biden should use all this great leverage we've given them by putting sanctions on. And what we've seen is the Iranians have proved, no, they have leverage in terms of moving forward on nuclear program as well as activities you know, in the Gulf. Uh, you know, the uh, failed uh, to act decisively to bring the U.S. back in, kind of dawdled uh, you know, while an Iranian election occurs and hardliners take over the presidency. And frankly, failed to have an answer to obvious Iranian objections. You know, as we've talked about, that uh, if you're Iran, what, who do you think is going to be in power in 2025? That, uh, you know, the question of uh, you know, demand for compensation, wanting to keep the gains that they've, they've made while the U.S. had walked you know, out of the treaty. Uh, you know, the question of updates. I mean, all of these are issues where the Iranians have very good questions for the U.S. And as far as I can tell, the Biden administration doesn't seem to have any answers. That that's the moment they say everybody should get back in and never mind all those other little unpleasantness you know, out there. And so we really do seem to be at a, a real impasse here. I mean, the U.S. is back to, uh, you know, talking in coded terms about military options, which in my view has never been a serious option. It's never a realistic option. The idea of taking, you know, the Middle East into another general war and uh, one that would be far worse than the Iraq war for, for many reasons, you know, to me should be uh, inconceivable that it appears that the new Iranian government has decided it probably can live with sanctions, that it's not you know, going to abase itself and give in, uh, give the U.S. whatever it wants to you know, get the JCPOA uh, you know, back in place. 
and uh, you know that uh, you know we can very well see ourselves moving back into this very hostile relationship, which has had such a malign influence for decades in the in the Middle East. I mean, we can go back, you know, through uh, you know 30, 40 years and see what has happened. You know that one doesn't want to continue that kind of policy, and I worry that we set up uh, you know an almost a pure disaster here of imagining Donald Trump making twenty twenty four his his uh, campaign program is to uh, you know destroy the Islamic bomb to to you know put Iran as the centerpiece of his uh, you know campaign, which for other reasons may very well succeed, and that's a, a frightening thought to to many of us. So the question of where we go today, it strikes me the you know, the Biden administration has to work in concert with an Iranian government that does need to be more flexible. And I think, well, you know, the question of lifting sanctions as well as ones that were put on by the Trump administration, clearly to sabotage any attempt to get back into the JCPOA. They're labeled other issues, but clearly it was a sabotage attempt. The question of how to, you know, how to promote access to the international economy by Iran at a time where companies are nervous about what happens in the next couple of years. Uh, there's no easy answer there. The question of how to deepen ties of Iranian people into the world economy. I mean, these are issues that if the U.S. wants to save the JCPOA, it needs to have some positive answers. And as far as I can tell, we don't have any at the moment. There also needs to be some attempt to deepen the political involvement of at least some Republicans, one hopes, you know, are willing to talk and be somewhat reasonable, you know, on an issue like this, as opposed to completely inflexible. Of course, we all know the political partisanship today and where that leads us. Nevertheless, the hope is that there are some folks out there to at least bring into discussions to show a willingness to address, you know, all parts of the political spectrum. And how to suggest to the Iranians that there are opportunities then in the future for new talks that they also would appreciate. That is a regional discussion of issues that includes their, their grievances as well as our grievances. How to perhaps fold that into discussions that we already see ongoing with Saudi Arabia and UAE, which to my mind are perhaps the most positive events we have going in the Gulf, is to hopefully lessen some of those tensions and move us away from what seems to be a sectarian war and to make it clear to residents of the region that this is on them primarily and not the United States. You know, we have uh, a U.S. policy. We, I mean, we have us here 70 years, ultimately, of almost conflict going back to the coup d'etat supported, you know, by the U.S. You know, taking us up through today, much of it being essentially aggression by the U.S. against Iran that has not been helpful. You know, Iran certainly responding badly in a number of places. We need to put that aside and try to find a way to look to the future and not the past. That isn't going to be easy. If we don't do that, I'm very concerned where we're going to end up with a JCPOA that will fully collapse with us back to the kinds of hostile atmosphere that we've been in in the future and the potential for war. You know, inadvertent or advertent, it doesn't matter. That would be horrific for all concerned. Um, let me um, uh, ask uh, Doug. You may recall, I think this was um, uh, in Hillary Clinton's um, uh, quest for the nomination for the presidency against Obama. She responded that she would annihilate Iran uh, if it attacked or did something adverse to Israel, um, never retracted. Um, and aside from that, we have regular instances of Israeli U.S. supported assassinations of Iranian scientists, 
uh, sabotage of uh, Iranians' uh, nuclear uh, program, um, which if you look at it parallel, we don't find anything like that happening to us, which if they did to us, we would eliminate them from the face of the earth. Um, with these things ongoing, how much uh, good faith can the Israelis give to anything that uh, we would say? Well, one can certainly understand the, the Iranian frustration that from their standpoint, there is an ongoing war against them. Uh, you know, one, uh, you know the, and the U.S. is involved, for example, in Syria, primarily, it appears, because we are directing this against Iran. I mean, all you have to do is listen to U.S. and Iranian or Israeli rhetoric and look at behavior to see why the Iranians look at this as constant attack. I would like to see the U.S. make very clear that U.S. policy will be set separate from that of its friends in the region, whether it be Israel or Saudi Arabia, that U.S. policy is going to be directed at American interests, and America's interest is having a better relationship with Iran. You know, America's interest is not being sucked into sectarian conflict. American interest is having a good relationship with a civilization that goes back a very long time. People who have a set of interests and uh, you know the US can appreciate and deal with separate from their grievances and problems with others in the region. I think that's what we need and it's going to be very hard to get there. Yeah. Um, Nagar, let me ask you, what do you think the consequences would be uh, if Iran announced, okay, we now do have a nuclear capability. Would that lead in your judgment to nuclear proliferation in the region? Uh, would that cause Israel to attack? What would be the fallout? It obviously requires some speculation, but what do you think would be the most probable fallout? The failure of diplomacy in Iran says, well, so what? If Pakistan and Israel and India can have nukes, we can as well. Bruce, I think it's a great hypothetical question, but I just want to reiterate, I think so far the calculation in Tehran and all indications point to the fact that they're not looking for a nuclear weapons program. Um, as I mentioned, they're trying to push the edge to the limit of uh, what they can do as far as getting the know-how to provide, uh, to produce enough material that can potentially also be used um, for a weapon. But I think the calculation, and this comes from my interviews and background talks with many Iranian officials in different political camps, the, their calculation is that the cost of going after an actual weapon um, is just too high and it's not something that the United States or Israel or other allies are going to easily tolerate. So um, I think it's a very interesting or a clear distinction where the way Iran is trying to gain leverage without gaining the actual bomb. Now, any of these calculations may change in the future. There's a fatwa right now by the Supreme Leader that um, you know, makes the use of nuclear weapons um, illegal, you know, unreligious and all of that. But I don't want to predict into the future, but so far, and at least for, for short term, I can say, the calculation is that they're still a member of the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. They're still within the JCPOA to this day. To those who say Iran doesn't want a deal, my answer is that they are still in the deal. The deal is on life support. It needs to be revived and all of that. It's almost dead, but they're still in the deal. So it's, it's not something they want to pursue. As far as a 
hypothetical situation, I, you know, I also think Tehran is right to assume that there's a high cost that the United States and especially Israel um, are not going to easily tolerate Iran's race for an actual bomb. You know, how they're going to deal with that depends on who's in power here in Washington, who is in power in Israel. But um, I think the point, the important point I want to make is that that's just not something Tehran is pursuing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Trita, what do you think? Suppose, however, they stop short of a bomb, but they do move towards a capability because diplomacy shipwrecks. Um, are other countries in the region like Saudi Arabia or Egypt, are they prepared to at least to develop a capability and say, well, we need at least the same standing as Iran does on you know, having something at least close to an operational weapon? Certainly there, there is risk for it. I do wonder if that risk has been a bit exaggerated. Uh, would we worry about the Saudis doing it, mindful of the leverage that the United States actually has over Saudi Arabia if it wants to? I'm, you know, obviously admitting that the United States rarely uses its leverage against Saudi Arabia. We see that in Yemen quite clearly today. But if we are serious about non-proliferation, if we are serious about that risk and don't want to see it happen, I have no doubt in my mind that the United States could do quite a lot to make sure that it doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, I, I think some of those concerns are um, uh, justified, but in my view, they're all the more a reason as to why we need to restore the JCPOA. In fact, if we have the JCPOA and the other countries say we want to have a JCPOA as well, I would be 100% in favor of that. Absolutely. Open up with the same degree of inspections that the Iranians have agreed to, the same type of limitations, et cetera. I think that would be a much safer world than what we have right now, particularly if there is uh, and in many cases, an open speculation by the Saudis and others that they would develop the, the capability. Uh, Doug, let me ask you if this is, you may recall uh, that when I think the, the SALT II treaty couldn't get uh, ratified, the Congress uh, passed a resolution saying no money could be spent uh, that violated you know, the SALT II provisions. Is that a possibility, you know, if, if Biden can't, uh, uh, pass or get anything through, or even a Trump, could a Democratic Congress, you think, uh, get a provision that would at least, through the appropriations power, force compliance with the JPCOA? Well, I suppose that they could, you know, bar the use of any public funds to impose, add, or enforce sanctions. Uh, I think it's primarily a negative power. It's hard for me to say, if they could try to force, you know, money will be used to eliminate all sanctions. I, I'm not sure how that, you know, got to be, con you know, the, the courts do tend to take you know, separation of powers, you know, fairly seriously and whether they would you know, allow Congress to kind of mandate that. I'm not, I'm not certain. Uh, that would be rough. I mean, of course, if you had a majority in the, uh, you know, in both Congress, in both House and Senate, Presumably, you could pass an agreement, if not a treaty, that you could still might be able to pass some kind of a, a presidential uh, agreement, even if not a treaty, which would be better. I mean, you know, obviously, because of the two thirds, uh, certainly with a majority, there's you have a lot more options. The, the problem now, the presumption, I mean, if you look at the Senate vote on uh, cutting off uh, arms for Saudi Arabia and Yemen, I mean, it was an, you know, basically a two thirds vote to uphold the Saudis. You know, so that that tells you that you had one third in the Senate. I mean, that's just not much to work for if you're trying to cobble together some kind of legislative support. 
for the JCPOA. Yeah, well, I agree. I think that Congress is kind of phased out. Uh, it gets to return to a kibitzing role uh, in foreign policy. It really uh, takes no lead. Uh, I can't imagine a Henry Cabot Lodge, you know, leading a campaign against a Versailles Treaty. It just wouldn't possibly happen here. Um, uh, let me ask uh, Trita, um, is there anything in, you know, the, in the future of uh, Iranian politics that uh, you think could lead to a more open or receptive or skillful uh, diplomacy? Or are we going back toward uh, the, uh, the more uh, aggressive approach of Ahmadinejad? Um, you know, I think everyone is still hoping that what we saw in uh, Vienna was an opening bid. And as a result, uh, the Iranians are going to uh, show it, uh, a bit more flexibility uh, in, in the next rounds, uh, which, again, will not be sufficient because it will be have to be met with American flexibility as well, as was the case last time around. So I, I think it's too early to tell if um, uh, what they're doing now is their new standard and that it's essentially a negotiating team that only has one gear. Um, I, I, mindful of the importance of the JCPOA, um, I, I, I have a hard time seeing that there wouldn't be adjustment. I, I, I would see it as a rather typical thing uh, that they would do something like this. In fact, what they did in Vienna was to go very aggressive on the nuclear front, meaning of the things that they would have to scale back. But what they suggested on the new, on the on the sanctions front in that working group was pretty much what they had said early on. So there wasn't a significant amount of change there. And the question then is: Are they doing this in order to make sure that there's greater flexibility on the American side in the sanctions front, and then they will have to uh, scale back some of the things that they've said in the nuclear uh, working group? We don't know yet. The next round is going to start on Thursday. Uh, the, at least the Europeans are ready to stay there for nine days. And the hard end, that end is because of Christmas. Uh, and, and try to make sure that there's enough coming out of that agreement or, or that uh, round that will justify continuing the talks um, with some degree of hope and optimism. There is an alternative outcome of all of this uh, that I have to want, want to be very clear. I am not advocating for it. I'm just saying that I think unlike 2015, where I think it was quite clear that if there wasn't a deal, there would be a, a move towards war. I am not so sure that this time around uh, it is as straight. Uh, it can definitely still happen, probably still the most likely scenario. But I think there may be another scenario this time around because of changing circumstances. And that is what I would call like the coma option, which the JCPA essentially is dead, but all sides pretend that it's still alive. And the West has shown itself to be very capable of pretending that the Oslo peace process has been alive for the last 30 years when it clearly has not. Um, and, and, and the reason for this is because right now it seems that both sides feel that the political cost for them to actually agree to a compromise is too high. So they're not willing to do it, at least not yet. At the same time, the cost of war is absolutely disastrous. But if they keep some form of a format alive, a status quo, in which the United States does not lift the sanctions, uh, it may actually increase some of the sanctions, although they probably will not be terribly uh, effective. Uh, the Iranians continue to expand the program, but far less aggressively than they have so far, because if they're not using it for negotiation leverage, they probably won't be needing 
that type of an escalation. Uh, the Europeans, I think, would be happy with it because otherwise, the minute you admit that there's that the JCPOA is dead, then you have a massive crisis on your hands, and they cannot afford that right now if they could choose it away. And the big um, uh, uh, uncertainty, of course, is what the Israelis would do. But there too, I think there's small signs of potential change because I think the Israelis have come to the conclusion that it is perhaps not at all as likely as it was before that the United States will take military action, uh, not just on its own, but also even if Israel were to initiate action, uh, that the Americans would then uh, uh, automatically feel obliged to follow suit. This means that if the Israelis continue to make threats of this kind and then the U.S. doesn't do it, and then Israel also doesn't do it, then Israel will have lost a lot of credibility. And so as long as the Iranians don't escalate too much, the United States doesn't lift the sanctions so that the Iranian economy is still under uh, these crippling uh, pressures. And uh, they continue to do their sabotage, but probably with far less spectacular things so that they allow the Iranians the ability to deny that anything happened at all. Then I can see that perhaps for a period of time, there will be some sort of a um, a coma status, not terribly stable, but far more stable than it would have been a couple of years ago. And the only positive that can come out of that is that at least perhaps they will keep the option of going back to the table alive when all sides are much more serious than they are right now. Yeah. Nagar, let me ask you um, two questions. One, uh, to what extent is there indigenous uh, support within Iran uh, to renounce um, a nuclear capability or a nuclear bomb? Is there really anyone, any party, even dissidents, uh, uh, Nobel Prize winners who argue Iran just should announce we will not uh, have a bomb? And then the second is what if any um, support is there in Israel for rejecting the idea that Iran is an existential threat and that the Netanyahu's have vastly magnified you know, its danger to Israel uh, in order to obtain a political benefit? Well, Bruce, as far as Iranian public opinion, first I want to speak with a caveat that polling in Iran, political polling of this nature, especially about you know national security issues, very important issues like the nuclear program, Iran's regional policy, it's very um, sensitive and it's not done with much independence, definitely can't be done. Um, by the opposition. So it, it all comes with a caveat. But we have seen, interestingly, we have seen fairly strong support for a civilian nuclear program or the civilian nuclear program. Now, the extent of it um, varies. How much to enrich? Do you get close to the enrichment level that can be used for something beyond a civilian program? But I would say, because Iran's nuclear program is, the civilian program is used for various research and scientific medical uh, purposes. There's this, um, you know, conversation that it could, it potentially may be able to uh, replace uh, a portion of the fossil fuel as energy industry and all of that. But there's also very vocal opposition to the cost, to the political cost, which also comes in the form of economic cost, meaning sanctions, crippling economic sanctions are imposed on Iran as a result of the expansion of the nuclear program or the nuclear program altogether. So there's very vocal um, opposition to it, especially uh, outside the country among the exiles and uh, certain opposition parties, uh, critics inside Iran. 
Um, it's it's just hard to uh, gauge that at every moment. I wouldn't say any side really is the majority as it goes ups and down. But if you talk about an actual nuclear bomb, I hear very little talks and discussions of that. Even the hardliners, uh, when they're in power, or the ones that are very close to the um, to the to the officials in power, are very careful. They're, they're realizing that there any comment can be picked up by an American newspaper, an Israeli newspaper, at any moment. Um, and I feel like the ones that are closer to power among the hardliners are also very careful as far as um, openly discussing an actual nuclear weapons program. That I have seen conversations of that kind, basically in, in a, as a continuation of the escalation, saying, as you uh, initially asked, uh, why don't why doesn't Iran just go down the same path as Pakistan or North Korea? Just get it done and then join the club, and then you'll be invincible. But it's not a very um, uh, widespread, I would say, dialogue, even among uh, the hardliners. And then I just wanted to make one other point about, um, we're talking hypotheticals. President Biden, um, you know, at any moment still, or from the beginning of his uh, administration in January, could and still can issue an executive order it's within the power of the president without lifting sanctions yet. He can issue an executive order and just announce symbolically that the United States is now returning back to the JCPOA. What would that achieve? One, the U.S. can rejoin the actual table because, as many of you know, Iran and the U.S. are not negotiating directly. They're across the street in two different hotels and the Europeans are walking back and forth in the, in the winter of Vienna um, co conveying messages of what went on in the room. And the reason for that is the U.S. is not part of the JCPOA, is not part of that framework, the P5 plus one, the, the table of where everyone is sitting at. So it's Iran and the other parties and then the U.S. negotiators in a different hotel. So an executive order, which is within the power of the president, would first resolve that issue when negotiators, Iranian Americans sit face to face, so much more can be achieved than if you're at different hotels across the street. And it would also give some confidence to the Iranians. It would sort of put the U.S. and Iran on equal footing. Both of you are now in the deal, in a deal which you signed, and but not in full compliance. So the U.S. will be back in a deal, but at uh, you know, reduced compliance or a lack of compliance, which is sort of the situation Iran is at now, reduced compliance. And then they can easily um, negotiate a sequence of return to full compliance. But right now, when the U.S. talks about returning to mutual compliance, they're essentially outside of the deal that Iran is still um, inside. And you had a, you also had a question about Israeli yeah, yeah. public the, opinion. The, 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 the Maybe Trita well, should take that. Yeah, well, yeah, Trita or Doug, either one. You know, there have been... Uh, Israeli generals, they're tired, that say that Iran is not an existential threat, uh, that Netanyahu and his disciples magnify the threat manyfold in order to justify Israel having their nuclear program unpoliced and to be very, very aggressive and insistent that uh, the United States be equally antagonistic toward Iran. Uh, is that uh, something that can grow in Israel, uh, the ouster of Netanyahu? foreshadow anything like that? Or is that just a maverick out there that voice is going to die? Let me make a quick comment and then I'll hand it off to Trita. I just want to point out in support of diplomacy that the Israeli uh, intelligence 
apparatus concluded that the nuclear deal is actually to the benefit of Israel because it puts a strong enough cap on Iran's nuclear program. So they were in support of the JCPOA as opposed to Bibi Netanyahu, who was very much opposed to it politically from a um, security and intelligence uh, viewpoint that uh, that part of the Israeli uh, structure was um, supporting the JCPOA. But Trita knows more about all of this. Uh, Tree, let's have Doug come in first. I think he's uh, entitled to time, and then we'll shift right to you. I think the problem in Israel is the political system itself has shifted very hard to the right. I mean, there are a number of former Mossad and other officials who have made the case that, in fact, Iran is not an existential threat, that as much one as one might dislike it as a state and a government, that it has not shown itself to be suicidal and that there's no reason to believe that it would you know, engage in an act that would ensure that everyone in the Tehran would uh, you know, leave this earth in a radioactive funeral pyre. You know, that's very unlikely. The problem is that Netanyahu was thrown out by essentially an equally right-wing coalition, or, or a coalition that ranged from hard right to some moderates. It, so the challenge there, I think, is that it's very hard politically to change the calculus on an issue like this, even though there's very strong national security support for a much more measured view. But again, I think I think Trita you know, might have some uh, observations here that would be very helpful. Yeah. Thank you, yeah look, look, um, the idea that uh, Israel views Iran as an existential threat is uh, part of the Israeli government line. But is Israel's actual conduct such that they that belief is translated into policy, it never has been. In fact, uh, you have three heads of the Mossad in a row, Ephraim Halevi, um, um, uh, Pardo, and also, I forgot uh, the, the middle the guy in the middle, his name, have been on the record saying that Israel, uh, Iran is not an existential threat. Iran is a threat, a challenge, a problem, existential, no. Uh, Ehud Barak has been saying that since 1992. Uh, and they've had their various reasons for doing so. The first and foremost one is that it's not true, but also because they thought that it was actually an, a problematic statement because it belittles Israel's own power, which is immense, to say that Iran is an existential threat. But in Washington, that line has been repeated over and over again because it's been aimed at pushing the United States in a specific direction. If you accept all of the different specific elements that the Israelis have been uh, putting into the Washington debate, A, Iran is an existential threat, B, they are irrational. C, they are messianic and suicidal. Well, if they're messianic, suicidal, irrational, and an existential threat, all of those three combined ensures that you cannot have diplomacy, you cannot have deterrence, because you cannot have a deterrence against an irrational, suicidal actor. The only option you're left with is to take preemptive military or preventive military strikes, which has been the aim of the Israelis. So this is much more of a, uh, a way of constructing the situation to push the United States in a specific direction than an actual belief uh, that the Israelis have held and have acted upon. Uh, Nagad, let me ask you, how much, if any, uh, is uh, what happened in Libya after Qaddafi abandoned WMD uh, an influence on Iran, whether it's explicit or uh, implicit, we've got to have some kind of WMD leverage or otherwise they're going to go back to another Mossadegh effort to overthrow the government and we're not going to accept that. Well, the fear of 
regime change or pushes for regime change in Iran are very serious. And I think for good reasons, you know, just this previous U.S. administration was explicitly um, sort of, you know, not exactly using the words, but Secretary Pompeo clearly was uh, pushing uh, towards that um, U.S. allies, powerful allies in the region, Arab countries in the Persian Gulf, Israel have all um, one way or another over the years uh, sort of pointed to that. So the fear for wanting the Islamic Republic to be overthrown inside Islamic Republic is very serious. But again, going back to my previous point, I think right now also there's this sort of um, parallel um, pushback towards that fear that a nuclear weapon, the, the high political and then now the economic cost of going for an actual weapon um, is, is not worth it. It's not the only solution. But at the same time, Iran has a domestic um, you know, non-nuclear weapons program, missiles that if developed domestically and uh, proxies and allies across the region, all of these, Iran's entire regional policy is shaped with this notion that there's very serious attempts or intentions of an overthrowing uh, of the Islamic Republic since the beginning, the, the revolution, the invasion, uh, not invasion, but the attack by Saddam, the Iran-Iraq war, the years of Iran-Iraq war are very, um, you know, fresh and alive in the psyche of the Iranian, both political class and also the Iranian population. Um, that was seen as an attempt to sort of either overthrow or weaken or take over the country. So it's a serious fear. And I think that's why Iran has developed sort of this defensive or in some areas of the region offensive posture, the regional policy they have. And it's it's something that's not necessarily non-negotiable, but it's very difficult for them to negotiate when, for example, um, you hear from certain policy circles in the U.S., why don't they just give up their missiles? They see that as a defense because there is this notion of an attempt for regime change in the country. So um, I think, again, my understanding still is that the calculation is not a nuclear bomb, but a combination of all of these other policies and capabilities um, and, you know, also allyship support of a country like Russia, China, be it at the Security Council in the UN or on the ground, um, the, the partnership in Syria and all of that are, are part of that big picture thinking that there is an intention by U.S. and its allies um, to sort of overthrow the government in Tehran and I honestly think they have good reasons to think like that. Yeah. Doug, you remember in, in 1956, you know, Eisenhower repudiated the attack on Suez involving Israel, France, Great Britain. Uh, and Eisenhower was able to, he won re-election. Um, today, you know, is there any possibility you see the politics in the United States restoring to that kind of uh, mood and ability uh, to act even-handedly in the Middle East? or as we're so captured by Israel and the oil interests that uh, we're basically uh, frozen or paralyzed and uh, we can't be a neutral anymore. Well, it's certainly gotten a lot worse. I mean, George H.W. Bush was uh, you know, relatively even-handed. You know, and, you know, the Secretary Baker, I mean, that there clearly was an understanding in that administration. Even Ronald Reagan was horrified by 
you know, the invasion of Lebanon and put some pressure on Israel and after, you know, the Shatila, you know, the, the Palestinian camps, et cetera. You know, so we've had that impulse. It, uh, I think the particular problem is it's in the congressional Republican Party. It's not just a question of an administration. I mean, Donald Trump at one point when he was running for office talked about even-handed you know, treatment of Palestinian Israelis, and that was kind of the last we heard of it. And we certainly didn't see it when he was president. But so much of this pressure comes from the congressional side. So it's going to be very hard for any Republican. Now, we are seeing, I think, a change on the Democratic side that uh, you know, younger progressives uh, you know, are very upset and concerned. They're, they care about human rights. They recognize that there's blowback, which is something you would think Republicans could understand, that if you occupy other people for you know, 50, 60 years, bad things will happen, you know, that this is not a policy to promote stability. It's not a promote, you know, I mean, what Israel needs is peace. I mean, you, know, you tell people, you know, Israel needs peace and Israel needs, you know, to live with Palestinians and Arabs and needs to live with those in the region. You know, that would seem to be an obvious, uh, and I, but I think here the real issue, especially on the Republican right, gets into religious eschatology, which contaminates a certain amount of this, that, uh, you know, you can talk logically about uh, you know the the politics and but the moment you get into some of that, and then I think that makes it much tougher. And you see some of the, you know, the interest groups, the NGOs. It's going to be very hard. We need somebody like a George H. W. Bush, with very strong uh, you know internationalist credentials, to you know point out his experience, his or her experience, and to make the point that we have to be able to live with people on both sides. That uh, what we needed to be is both pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian. This is not an issue of being anti-Israeli. It's an issue of being pro-both peoples and finding a way to help them live together in peace. Yeah, uh, I think we're about the end of the time here. I wanted to ask Trita a last question. I think it's been at least reported that our intelligence community at one time concluded in about 2003, Iran had abandoned a nuclear program and then it reinstituted it. I don't know, you know what year that was. Uh, but could you explain what would be the dynamics that have caused the, the program at least to be put on hold or frozen and what provoked Iran to move on that plateau again? So uh, it wasn't the nuclear program that had been abandoned. It was that the Iranians had elements of uh, embryonic weapons program up until 2003 and that that was abandoned. And it's not been reinstituted ever since. And we just had um, the head of the CIA, Bill Burns, who have a tremendous amount of experience with Iran in particular and the JCPOA, saying that he's seen no evidence that the Iranians are going up to 90% or doing anything else that would go in the military uh, territory. Part of the reason why they abandoned it in 2003 is most likely because Saddam Hussein was taken out. I mean, there's been so much focus of thinking that uh, the Iranians are building a nuclear weapons program because they want to focus on Israel or that Saddam was doing it because they wanted to focus on on the United States. Actually, we know from the interviews with Saddam Hussein after he was captured that part of the reason why he didn't fully come clear about the fact that he actually given up most of it, if not all of it, was because he didn't want the Iranians to think that he didn't have it because his obsession was Iran. Similarly, the Iranians were very focused on what Saddam was doing and not doing. Uh, and it seems that the key motivation for them to have a program was precisely uh, Saddam and the fear of a second war with Iraq. In 1988, when or 89, when, when the war ended, both sides felt that the truce was unstable, and that 
there would be another war and that the other side could not handle the amount of casualties in that other war. So as a result, both sides thought that the other side would use weapons of mass destruction in the first phase of the next war. That was a key motivating factor for the Iranians and the Iraqis to go in that direction. With Saddam out of the picture, it appears that that may have been the key reason as to why the Iranians abandoned uh, those elements back in 2003. Well, um, I think we're, we're out of time here. Uh, does anyone want to make any uh, final comments? I think there's a consensus. Everybody agrees that diplomacy ought to be uh, pursued with, uh, with uh, uh, both competence and uh, uh, versatility that the option of diplomacy is going to be grim, even if we don't know the details. Um, and there's going to be a, you know, a, a require some kind of evolution in our political culture, certainly on the U.S. side. I think to make that happen. Uh, if you allow me, uh, I would like to thank you for moderating this uh, wonderful event. I'd like to thank uh, my friend Trita Parsi, uh, Doug Bandau, dear friend, and uh, Nigar uh, for participating in this insightful event. Uh, we hope to have you again with us. And if there are any questions, uh, I think we still can do three, four minutes, five minutes. I saw one question, Bruce, if there's time, if you allow me, I'm happy to take that question. Sure. Uh -huh. From, uh, I believe, Harold Walker, the question is that, uh, do you take encouragement from the fact that improving the economy was high on the aim of the stated aims of the new Iranian regime, which would be very difficult to achieve without the lifting of U.S. sanctions? I agree that um, economic... Uh, improvement will be high to achieve without the lifting of sanctions. Also, Iran has a large amount of assets frozen outside the country, billions of dollars, um, you know, at the request of the U.S. as an enforcement uh, of U.S. sanctions. But with this hardline team, I, I want to put it this way, they want sanctions relief and they they actually call these nuclear negotiations negotiations to lift sanctions or to get rid of these uh, tyrannical sanctions as they call them, but they don't feel like they need them. They want it, they don't need it. So there's only so much concession, I think this team specifically in the Iranian um, state as a whole is going to make and just wanting sanctions relief and you know be willing to give up anything for that kind of relief is just not something that I see. Of course, they came in the first round of negotiations. They came in with maximalist demands, which I think is is a natural thing you do when you're negotiating, and then you're willing to sort of pull back uh, your position and uh, you know make concessions as negotiations continue. But I just think this goes back to why why those like myself think that the Trump um, policy of maximum pressure was a failure because it was the ultimate. Uh, pressure by U.S. sanctions, and it didn't achieve any policy policy goals. It basically didn't achieve any change in policy in Iran, even though it inflicted a lot of economic pressure. Um, let me ask you this, Nagar, and also Doug, if you you know, uh, how uh, effective are the sanctions? How leaky are they? Are there uh, benefits that uh, persons get because it's very profitable? You know to evade the sanctions. You get high <laughs> super uh, markups on whatever you're selling. Uh, and I, I would I would think, especially the Chinese, if not the Russians, uh, would be eager to try to circumvent the sanctions. 
but how strictly enforceable are they as a practical matter? Well, they do have a real impact. On the other hand, sanctions evasion is an entire industry. I mean, we see that with, say, North Korea, you know, where Chinese enforcement goes up and down depending upon their political calculation, how irritated they are with the North and how irritated they are with the United States, you know, as well as profit. I mean, North Korea has managed to move ahead with nuclear weapons and create them despite, you know, despite sanctions. You know, Iran you know, has been able to sell oil to a number of countries where those countries in many ways are too important for the U.S., to fully sanction. So the U.S. has threatened China that, well, you know, at some point we might uh, really enforce this stuff. We don't want you buying their oil. You know, the U.S. wasn't happy when China announced its major uh, deal. And we'll see what comes from that deal and how much money actually flows. Nevertheless, that shows that uh, your countries can play a game of chicken. And then a lot of the stuff occurs off the books. I mean, you, you constantly change your companies, you recharter companies, you recharter ships. You know, we had the issue of the Iranian oil vessels going to Venezuela and the question of who, you know, who owns them and what's on them and where are they headed. You know, companies turn off transponders. We have a lot of that with the North Koreans, kind of ghost ships that suddenly seem to disappear, you know, and then suddenly reappear somewhere else. And we can presume, well, they've probably been offloading coal or oil or something. So, you know, the sanctions do have an impact and they make it much harder for normal employment normal commercial relations, which frankly would be the best that we could have with Iran of integrating it into the world economy. Nevertheless, the Iranians certainly know how to make some money off of it and get around them. And they uh, they spend a lot of money doing so. And a lot of people make a lot of money doing so. Yeah, I, I remember a conversation that Trump had with uh, President Erdogan of Turkey about Hulk Bank and evading sanctions against Iran. And it was just a political deal as far as Trump was concerned. It had nothing to do with the sanctions regime. But in the guys- Let me add, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just want to add a quick point to your point and Doug's point. I just want to clarify that there's a small class of elite in the country. They, they're called Kasavan Atari, more sanctions profiteers in Iran who actually do benefit, as Doug was explaining, from sort of this shady market, which lacks any transparency, the state has to rely on non-state actors to sell large sums of oil, you know, move uh, massive amounts of money. You know, I've heard of sanctions profiteers opening bank accounts across the world for their infant in the name of their infant child, putting millions of dollars, moving millions of dollars. But what that does to the country is that it creates an ecosystem for corruption, benefiting the most corrupt class. And at this point, these are not just government officials. These are, you know, civilians who are benefiting, who are coming in to sort of help the state. It becomes a policy of the state because they want to circumvent the sanctions. They want to, uh, you know, continue selling. But it just adds so much. And there is a lot of corruption around to the level of corruption while the real civilians, the everyday person suffers the economic um, pressure and the impact of sanctions. Yeah, I just make a general observation. I think we're probably time to close it. That is, uh, I think that the ability uh, to make the sanctions pinch is going to be uh, much attenuated once you know, Bitcoins come into play and it's going to be much more difficult to police the money laundering or whatever. <laughs> I think that's probably the uh, the nightmare of uh, the sanctions community, certainly OFAC and CIA, uh, but it's clearly coming. Um, and 
anyway, it's a, a, another element uh, that shows that we're dealing not with a static. Uh, You're right. Uh, it has already arrived. The Bitcoin sanction circumvention <laughs> yeah. has already started. It's going yeah. on, you know. Uh, did you want to have any final words um, uh, to say before we, we sign off, uh, Khalid? Uh, no, thank you again. And uh, we hope to see you another panel uh, in the future. And uh, that's it. Bye, everybody. That was a panel discussion hosted by the National Interest Foundation here in Washington. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast. With your support, we can continue our work and be independent. Thank you very much. And until next time, goodbye.